This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, sis. I'm Return of Lamac, and I want to welcome you to the first episode of Girl Goodnight. Every Sunday, you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Thank you so much to everyone that subscribed to our YouTube channel and followed us on social media. Click on the show description to see all the ways you can keep in touch. To submit original work and suggest stories for future episodes, send an email to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to share the show, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Tonight, we will be reading The Two Offers by Frances Harper, written in 1859. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, born in 1825, was one of the first black women to be published in the United States. She worked with William Still to help refugee slaves find freedom in Canada through the Underground Railroad and was an activist with the American Anti-Slavery Society. In 1894, she helped found the National Association of Colored Women and served as the vice president. She died at age 85 in 1911. The two offers chronicles the lives of cousins Laura LaGrange, who is deciding between two offers of marriage, and Jeanette Austin, who becomes an old maid. Both women make decisions that will ultimately determine the direction of their lives, but were they the best decisions? Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. The two offers. What is the matter with you, Laura, this morning? I have been watching you this hour, and in that time you have commenced a half dozen letters and torn them all up. What matter of such grave moment is puzzling your dear little head that you don't know how to decide? Well, it is an important matter. I have two offers for marriage, and I don't know which one to choose. I should accept neither, or to say the least, not at present. Why not? Because... I think a woman who is undecided between two offers has not love enough for either to make a choice, and in the very hesitation, indecision, she has a reason to pause and seriously reflect, lest her marriage, instead of being an affinity of souls or a union of hearts, should only be a mere matter of bargain and sale or an affair of convenience and selfish interest. But I consider them both very good offers, just such as many a girl would gladly receive. But to tell you the truth, I do not think that I regard either as a woman should the man she chooses for her husband. But then I refuse. There is a risk of being an old maid, and that is not to be thought of. Well, suppose there is. Is that the most dreadful fate that can befall a woman? Is there not more intense wretchedness in an ill-assorted marriage, more utter loneliness in a loveless home than in the lot of an old maid who accepts her earthly mission as a gift from God and strives to walk the path of life with earnest and unfaltering steps? Oh, what a little preacher you are. 
I really believe that you were cut out for an old maid, that when nature formed you, she put in a double portion of intellect to make up for a deficiency of love, and yet you are kind and affectionate. But I do not think that you know anything of the grand overmastering passion or the deep necessity of a woman's heart for loving. Do you think so? Resumed the first speaker, and bending over her work, she quietly applied herself to the knitting that had lain neglected by her side during this brief conversation. But as she did so, a shadow flitted over her pale and intellectual brow. A mist gathered in her eyes, and a slight quivering of the lips revealed a depth of feeling to which her companion was a stranger. But before I proceed with my story, let me give you a slight history of the speakers. They were cousins who had met life under different auspices. Laura LaGrange was the only daughter of rich and indulgent parents who spared no pain to make her an accomplished lady. Her cousin, Jeanette Alston, was the child of parents rich only in goodness and affection. Her father had been unfortunate in business and dying before he could retrieve his fortunes, left his business in an embarrassed state. His widow was unacquainted with his business affairs, and when the estate was settled, hungry creditors had brought their claims, and the lawyers had received their fees, she found herself homeless and almost penniless, and she, who had been sheltered in the warm clasp of loving arms, found them too powerless to shield her from the pitiless, pelting storms of adversity. Year after year, she struggled with poverty and wrestled with want till her toil-worn hands became too feeble to hold the shattered cords of existence and her tear-dimmed eyes grew heavy with the slumber of death. Her daughter had watched over her with untiring devotion, had closed her eyes in death, and gone out into the busy, restless world, missing a precious tone of voices of earth, a beloved step from the paths of life. Too self-reliant to depend upon the charity of relations, she endeavored to support herself by her own exertions, and she had succeeded. Her path for a while was marked with struggle and trial, but instead of useless repining, she met them bravely, and her life became not a thing of ease and indulgence, but of conquest, victory, and accomplishments. At the time when this conversation took place, the deep trials of her life had passed away. The achievements of her genius had won her position in the literary world, where she shone as one of its bright, particular stars. And with her fame came a competence of worldly means which gave her leisure for improvement and the riper development of her rare talents. And she, the pale intellectual woman whose genius gave life and vivacity to the social circle and whose presence threw a halo of beauty and grace around the charmed atmosphere in which she moved had at one period of her life known the mystic and solemn strength of an all-absorbing love years faded into the misty path had seen the kindling of her eye the quick flushing of her cheek and the wild throbbing of her heart at tones of a voice long since hushed to the stillness of death. Deeply, wildly, passionately, she had loved. Her whole life seemed like the pouring out of rich, warm, and gushing affections. This love quickened her talents, inspired her genius, and threw over her life a tender and spiritual earnestness. And then came a fearful shock, a mournful waking from that dream of beauty and delight. A shadow fell around her path. It came between her and the object of her heart's worship. First, a few cold words, estrangement, and then a painful separation. 
the story of a woman's pride digging the sepulchre of her happiness and then a now made grave and her path over it to the spiritual world and thus faded out from that young heart her bright brief and saddened dream of life faint and spirit broken she turned from the scenes associated with the memory of the loved and lost she tried to break the chain of sad associations that bound her to the mournful past And so, pressing back the bitter sobs from her almost breaking heart, like the dying dolphin whose beauty is born of its death anguish, her genius gathered strength from suffering and wondrous power and brilliancy from the agony she hid within the desolate chambers of her soul. Men hailed her as one of Earth's strangely gifted children and wreathed the garlands of fame for her brow when it was throbbing with a wild and fearful unrest. They breathed her name with applause when through the lonely halls of her stricken spirit was an earnest cry for peace, a deep yearning for sympathy and heart support. But life, with its stern realities, met her. Its solemn responsibilities confronted her. In turning with an earnest and shattered spirit to life's duties and trials, she found a calmness and strength that she had only imagined in her dreams of poetry and song. We will now pass over a period of 10 years, and the cousins have met again. And that calm and lovely woman, in whose eyes is a depth of tenderness, tempering the flashes of her genius, whose looks and tones are full of sympathy and love, we recognize the once smitten and stricken Jeanette Alston. The bloom of her girlhood had given way to a higher type of spiritual beauty, as if some unseen hand had been polishing and refining the temple in which her lovely spirit found its habitation, and this had been the fact. Her inner life had grown beautiful, and it was this that was constantly developing the outer. Never in the early flush of womanhood, when an absorbing love had lit up her eyes and glowed in her life, as she appeared so interesting as when, with a countenance which seemed overshadowed with the spiritual light, she bent over the deathbed of a young woman just lingering at the shadowy gates of the unseen land. Has he come? Faintly, but eerily exclaimed the dying woman. Oh, how I have longed for his coming, and even in death he forgets me. Oh, Do not say so, dear Laura. Some accident may have detained him, said Jeanette to her cousin, for on that bed from whence she will never rise lies the once beautiful and light-hearted Laura LaGrange, the brightness of whose eyes has long since been dimmed with tears and whose voice has become like a harp whose every chord is tuned to sadness, whose faintest thrill and loudest vibrations are but the variations of agony. A heavy hand was laid upon her once warm and bounding heart, and a voice came whispering through her soul that she must die. But to her, the tidings was a message of deliverance, a voice hushing her wild sorrows to the calmness of resignation and hope. Life had grown so weary upon her head. The future looked so hopeless. She had no wish to tread again the track where thorns had pierced her feet and clouds overcast her sky, and she had hailed the coming death's angel as the footsteps of a welcome friend. And yet, Earth had one object so very dear to her weary heart. It was her absent 
and recreant husband, for since that conversation, she had accepted one of her offers and become a wife. But before she married, she learned that great lesson of human experience in woman's life to love the man who bowed at her shrine, a willing worshiper. He had a pleasing address, raven hair, flashing eyes, a voice of thrilling sweetness, and lips of persuasive eloquence. And being well-versed in the ways of the world, he won his way to her heart, and she became his bride, and he was proud of his prize. Vain and superficial in his character, he looked upon marriage not as a divine sacrament for the soul's development and human progression, but as the title deed that gave him possession of the woman he thought he loved. But alas for her, the laxity of his principles had rendered him unworthy of the deep and dying devotion of a pure-hearted woman. But for a while, he hid from her his true character, and she blindly loved him, and for a short period was happy in the consciousness of being beloved. Though sometimes a vague unrest would fill her soul when overflowing with a sense of the good, the beautiful, and the true, she would turn to him but find no response to the deep yearnings of her soul, no appreciation of life's highest realties, its solemn grandeur, and significant importance. Their souls never met, and soon, she found a void in her bosom that his earthborn love could not fill. He did not satisfy the wants of her mental and moral nature. Between him and her, there was no affinity of minds, no intercommunion of souls. Talk as you will of woman's deep capacity for loving, of the strength of her affectional nature. I do not deny it. But will the mere possession of any human love fully satisfy all the demands of her whole being? You may paint her in poetry or fiction as a frail vine, clinging to her brother man for support and dying when deprived of it. And all this may sound well enough to please the imaginations of schoolgirls or lovelorn maidens. But woman, the true woman, if you would render her happy, needs more than the mere development of her affectional nature. Her conscience should be enlightened, her faith in the true and right established, and scope given to her heaven-endowed and God-given faculties. The true aim of female education should be not a development of one or two, but all of the faculties of the human soul, because no perfect womanhood is developed by imperfect culture. Intense love is often akin to intense suffering, and to trust the whole wealth of a woman's nature on the frail bark of human love may often be like trusting a cargo of gold and precious gems to a bark that has never battled with the storm or buffeted the waves. Is it any wonder then that so many life barks go down, paving the ocean of time with precious hearts and wasted hopes? That so many float around us, shattered and demasted wrecks? That so many 
are stranded on the shoals of existence, mournful beacons and solemn warnings for the thoughtless, to whom marriage is a careless and hasty rushing together of the affections. Alas, that an institution so fraught with good for humanity should be so perverted, and that state of life, which should be filled with happiness, becomes so replete with misery. And this was the fate of Laura LaGrange. For a brief period after her marriage, her life seemed like a bright and beautiful dream, full of hope and radiant with joy. And then there came a change. He found other attractions that lay beyond the pale of home influences. The gambling saloon had power to win him from her side. He had lived in an element of unhealthy and unhallowed excitements and the society of a loving wife. The pleasures of a well-regulated home were enjoyments too tame for one who had vitiated his taste by the pleasures of sin. There were charmed houses of vice built upon dead men's loves where, amid a flow of song, laughter, wine, and careless mirth, he would spend hour after hour forgetting the cheek that was paling through his neglect, heedless of the tear-dimmed eyes, peering anxiously into the darkness, waiting or watching this return. The influence of old associations was upon him. In early life, home had been to him a place of ceilings and walls, not a true home built upon goodness, love, and truth. It was a place where velvet carpets hushed his tread, where images of loveliness and beauty invoked into being by painter's art and sculptor's skill pleased the eye and gratified the taste where magnificence surrounded his way and costly clothing adorned his person, but it was not the place for the true culture and right development of his soul. His father had been too much engrossed in making money, and his mother in spending it, in striving to maintain a fashionable position in society, in shining in the eyes of the world to give proper direction to the character of their wayward and impulsive son. His mother put beautiful robes upon his body, but left ugly scars upon his soul. She pampered his appetite, but starved his spirit. Every mother should be a true artist who knows how to weave into her child's life images of grace and beauty. The true poet capable of writing on the soul of childhood, the harmony of love and truth, and teaching it how to produce the grandest of all poems, the poetry of a true and noble life. But in his home, a love for the good, the true, and right had been sacrificed at the shrine of frivolity and fashion. That parental authority which should have been preserved as a string of precious pearls, unbroken and unscattered, was simply the administration of chance. At one time, obedience was enforced by authority. At another time, by flattery and promises. And just as often, it was not enforced at all. His early associations were formed as chance-directed and from his want of home training, his character received a bias, his life 
a shade which ran through every avenue of his existence and darkened all his future hours. Oh, if we would trace the history of all the crimes that have overshadowed this sin-shrouded and sorrow-darkened world of ours, how many might be seen arising from the wrong home influences or the weakening of the home ties. Home should always be the best school for the affections, the birthplace of high resolves, and the altar upon which lofty aspirations are kindled from whence the soul may go forth strengthened to act its part aright in the great drama of life with conscience enlightened, affections cultivated, and reason and judgment dominant. But alas for the young wife, her husband had not been blessed with such a home. When he entered the arena of life, the voices from home did not linger around his path as angels of guidance about his steps. They were not like so many messages to invite him to deeds of high and holy worth. The memory of no sainted mother arose between him and deeds of darkness. The earnest prayers of no father arrested him in his downward course. And before a year of his married life had waned, his young wife had learned to wait and mourn his frequent and uncalled for absence. More than once, had she seen him come home from his midnight haunts, the bright intelligence of his eye displaced by the drunkard's stare and his manly gait changed to the inebriated stagger and she was beginning to know the bitter agony that is compressed in the mournful words, a drunkard's wife. And then there came a bright but brief episode in her experience. The angel of life gave to her existence a deeper meaning and loftier significance. She sheltered in the warm clasp of her loving arms a dear babe, a precious child who love filled every chamber of her heart and felt the fount of maternal love gushing so new within her soul. That child was hers. How overshadowing was the love with which she bent over its helplessness. How much it helped to fill the void and chasms in her soul. How many lonely hours were beguiled by its winsome ways, its answering smiles and fond caresses. How exquisite and solemn was the feeling that thrilled her heart when she clasped the tiny hands together and taught her dear child to call God our Father. What a blessing was that child. The father paused in his headlong career, awed by the strange beauty and precocious intelligence of his child, and the mother's life had a better expression through her ministrations of love. And then there came hours of bitter anguish, shading the sunlight of her home and hushing the music of her heart. The angel of death bent over the couch of her child and beaconed it away. Closer and closer, the mother strained her child to her wildly heaving breast and struggled with the heavy hand that lay upon its heart. Love and agony contended with death, and the language of the mother's heart was, O oh, death away, that innocence is mine. I cannot spare him from my arms to lay him death in thine. I am a mother, death, 
I gave that darling birth. I could not bear his lifeless limbs should molder in the earth. But death was stronger than love and mightier than agony and won the child for the land of crystal fonts and deathless flowers. The poor stricken mother sat down beneath the shadow of her might grief, feeling as if a great light had gone out from her soul and that sunshine had suddenly faded around her path. She turned in deep anguish to the father of her child, the loved and cherished dead. For a while, his words were kind and tender. His heart seemed subdued, and his tenderness fell upon her worn and weary heart like rain on perishing flowers or cooling waters to lips all parched with thirst and scorched with fever. But the change was evanescent. The influence of unhallowed associations and evil habits had vitiated and poisoned the springs of his existence. They had bound him in their meshes, and he lacked the moral strength to break his fetters and stand erect in all the strength and dignity of a true manhood, making life's highest excellence his ideal and striving to gain it. And yet, Moments of deep contrition would sweep over him when he would resolve to abandon the wine cup forever, when he was ready to forswear the handling of another card, and when he would try to break away from the associations that he felt were working his ruin. But when the hour of temptation came, his strength was weakness, his earnest purpose were cobwebs, his well-meant resolutions ropes of sand, and thus passed year after year of the married life of Laura LaGrange. She tried to hide her agony from the public gaze, to smile when her heart was almost breaking. But year after year, her voice grew fainter and sadder. Her once light and bound step grew slower and faltering. Year after year, she wrestled with agony and strove with despair till the quick eyes of her brother read in the paling of her cheek and the dimming eye the secret anguish of her worn and weary spirit. On that wan, sad face, he saw the death tokens and he knew the dark wing of the mystic angel swept coldly around her path. Laura, said her brother to her one day, you are not well, and I think you need our mother's tender care and nursing. You are daily losing strength, and if you will go, I will accompany you. At first, she hesitated. She shrank almost instinctively from presenting that pale, sad face to the loved ones at home. That face was such a telltale. It told of her heart sickness, of hope deferred, and of the mournful story of unrequited love. But then a deep yearning for home sympathy woke within her, a passionate longing for love's kind words, for tenderness and heart support, 
and she resolved to seek the home of her childhood and lay her weary head upon her mother's bosom to be folded again in her loving arms to lay that poor bruised and aching heart where it might beat and throb closely to the loved ones at home all that love and tenderness could devise was done to bring the bloom to her cheek and the light to her eye but it was all in vain hers was a disease that no medicine could cure no earthly balm would heal it was a slow wasting of the vital forces the sickness of the soul the unkindness and neglect of her husband lay like a leaden weight upon her heart and slowly oozed away its life drops and where was he that had won her love and then cast it aside as a useless thing who rifled her heart of its wealth and spread bitter ashes upon its broken altars he was lingering away from her when the death damps were gathering on her brow when his name was trembling on her lips lingering away when she was watching his coming though the death films were gathering before her eyes and earthy things were fading from her vision I think I hear him now said the dying woman surely that is his step but the sound died away in the distance again she started from an uneasy slumber that is his voice I'm so glad he has come tears gathered in the eyes of the sad watchers by that dying bed for they knew that she was deceived he had not returned for her sake they wished his coming slowly the hours waned away and then came the sad soul-sickening thought that she was forgotten forgotten in the last hour of human need forgotten when the spirit about to be dissolved pause for the last time on the threshold of existence a weary watcher at the gates of death he has forgotten me again she faintly murmured and the last tears she would ever shed on earth sprung to her mournful eyes and clasping her hands together in silent anguish a few broken sentences issued from her pale and quivering lips they were prayers for strength and earnest pleading for him who had desolated her young life by turning its sunshine into shadows its smiles into tears he has forgotten me she murmured again but i can bear it the bitterness of death is past and i soon hope to exchange the shadows of death for the brightness of eternity the rugged paths of life for the golden streets of glory and the care and turmoils of earth for the peace and rest of heaven her voice grew fainter and fainter they saw the shadows that never deceive flit over her pale and faded face and knew that the death angel waited to soothe their weary one to rest to calm the throbbing of her bosom and cool the fever of her brain and amid the silent hush of their grief the freed spirit refined through suffering and brought into divine harmony through the spirit of living christ passed over the dark waters of death 
as on a bridge of light over whose radiant arches hovering angels bent. They parted the dark locks from her marble brow, closed the waxen lids over the once bright and laughing eye, and left her to the dreamless slumber of the grave. Her cousin turned from that deathbed a sadder and wiser woman. She resolved more earnestly than ever to make the world better by her example, gladder by her presence, and to kindle the fires of her genius on the altars of universal love and truth. She had a higher and better object in all her writings than the mere acquisition of gold or acquirement of fame. She felt that she had a high and holy mission on the battlefield of existence, that life was not given her to be frittered away in nonsense or wasted away in trifling pursuits. She would willingly espouse an unpopular cause, but not an unrighteous one. In her, the downtrodden slave found an earnest advocate. The flying fugitive remembered her kindness as he stepped cautiously through our republic to gain his freedom in a monarchical land, having broken the chains on which the rust of centuries had gathered. Little children learned to name her with affection. The poor called her blessed as she broke her bread to the pale lips of hunger. Her life was like a beautiful story, only it was clothed with the dignity of reality and invested with the sublimity of truth. True, she was an old maid. No husband brightened her life with his love or shaded it with his neglect. No children nestling lovingly in her arms called her mother. No one appended Mrs. to her name. She was indeed an old maid, not vainly striving to keep up an appearance of girlishness when departed was written on her youth. Not vainly pining at her loneliness and isolation. The world was full of warm, loving hearts and her own beat in unison with them. Neither was she always sentimentally sighing for something to love. Objects of affection were all around her, and the world was not so wealthy in love that it had no use for hers. In blessing others, she made a life in benediction, and as old age descended peacefully and gently upon her, she had learned one of life's most precious lessons that true happiness consists not so much in the fruition of our wishes as in the regulation of desires and the full development and right culture of our whole matures. Are you still up? Girl, good night.